time tonight. Please stand by. Welcome back to another edition of the Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and with me as always is Steffi. Hey. And Jason. Hello. Tonight, we got some space stuff to talk about, and we're definitely not going to use these stories as alternative motives to talk about larger science with a capital S or anything like that. So we're going to talk about some mirror universes, the search for Planet X, and a lunar odyssey. We got a lot to talk about, so let's launch, I guess. I don't know. Space. Space transition. Blast off. Ooh, that's a good one. Let's blast off. So like I said, we got a lot to talk about with space. And what we're really going to focus on on a list of unknown things in the first half of this episode And there's a lot we don't know about space. High up on that list of things is dark matter. We don't really know what it is. Seems to make up most of the mass of the universe, and it kind of just seems happy to chill on its own. Not interacting with normal matter. We can't really observe it without specific conditions. Why does this warrant the prestigious lead story spot on the Science Night podcast. Well, it's mostly because a team of researchers have hypothesized that dark matter could be semi-observable interactions between our universe and a dark mirror universe. And that's the only thing I read. I was like, that's on the docket. We're going to talk about it. I couldn't pass up the ability to see those those words. But you did pass up the opportunity to say, why does dark matter matter? Oh. Why do, this is this is why we have the circle of trust, right? <laughs> so we can yes and our way to success. So, team, I ask you, why does dark matter matter? Why does dark matter matter? Okay, we have this thing called general relativity. It explains a lot of things except for dark matter. Basically, there needs to be more matter than we actually see to actually have general relativity make sense, and so. That's where dark matter and dark energy comes into play. And as James mentioned, we're still trying to figure it out. We know that all the matter that we see takes up space, has mass, everything. But when we see gravitational pull on normal matter, we can't explain the whole thing unless you introduce dark matter into the into the mix. This article really talks about, they posit that for every physical interaction in normal matter, there's a mirror of it in a world of dark matter. This new kind of symmetry in nature that connects normal and dark matter worlds. And at the heart of it, really kind of when you're looking at the matter in our universe, um, normal matter, You, if you look at the weight of a proton and a neutron, they have almost exactly the same mass. And that allows them to bind together. And when I say almost the same amount of mass, I mean that a neutron is about 1% heavier than a proton slightly larger in weight than a proton and an electron. And so because of that balance, we have protons binding to neutrons to form our nuclei through the strong strong nuclear force. And they say that maybe there's this dark mirror universe where that balance is different, and it actually led to dark neutrons that are kind of able to go between the mirror universe and our universe and that's why we don't see clumps of dark matter 
really in our universe. Maybe it's dark neutrons that are just on their own floating around. In our universe, matter always seeks to be in a lowest energy state. And so if you get an isolated neutron, the lowest energy state for just a neutron by itself, it's actually unstable and it undergoes something called a beta decay where it decays into an electron and a proton. So that's why we don't see a bunch of neutrons floating around in our universe. And that's why they're like, well, maybe if the balance was different in this mirror universe, that's why we would see dark neutrons floating around. I'm just going to end with one more little thing because you're like, okay, there's a lot of things that have been said. What about observations that kind of back it up? So they're like, maybe we can go back to thinking or looking at evidence of early formation of our universe. In our universe, very, very, very early like start moments of the Big Bang, we had quark-gluon plasma soup that really started condensing into protons and neutrons. Universe cooled a little bit, neutrons and protons combined to form helium, hydrogen, things like that. We call this nucleosynthesis, and that's how we get all of our elements today. So they can kind of look back in the you know early formation of our universe to see if our models of normal matter predict that, or if we have to introduce these like particles going between the mirror universe and our universe. There you go. Also, you know what? If you are an expert in this area more than me, you don't like my explanation, I think you should email James to complain. <laughs> I agree with you. I agree yeah. with you. I, I also agree. And then you should come on the podcast and talk to there you us. Go. That would be awesome. Yes, and. <laughs> Basically, all I wanted to do is riff on what do you think we would be in this dark mirror universe? Do you think we would be like a like a nutraceuticals podcast where we're just like oh, no. test, testing different homeopathic remedies uh, and advocating for them? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. In, in think, the dark mirror universe. And I guess like Jason and I would be clean shaven. No way. No way. No. <laughs> That's the constant that remains. <laughs> but in the Star Trek universe, Spock had a goatee in the in the mirror verse, right? That's how you could tell it was evil Spock. That's fair. That's fair. Wait, um, are we are we the evil are yeah, we the I was evil versions say, of ourselves? Oh no. <laughs> I really have nothing to contribute to that. I don't know. I live my life as it is and I might be evil jason i'm not sure <laughs> I, I hope i'm not my question is this how does dark matter relate to batman and uh dark brandon <laughs> oh oh are they formed from dark matter probably well i mean batman was born in the darkness well that's, that's what true. i'm asking like is the yeah. dark knight really just the white knight of the mirror universe but he's still helping people he's the knight that gotham deserves but not the knight that gotham needs you know the white knight of Gotham is what Gotham needs. Right. But the dark knight of justice. He is vengeance. He is darkness. He is the knight. He is Batman. All right. Let's talk about like the <laughs> elephant in the room here. And that is that this particular paper is not peer reviewed yet. This yeah. is like the very beginning of a hypothetical with very little observation, actually, to back right. that up. It's a theoretical paper. And that's concerning. It's concerning for a couple of reasons, but it's also awesome that we can talk about it, right? Um, sure. It's awesome that we know about this stuff because there's a venue to publish observations like this or ideas like this before they're peer-reviewed so that they can get out there. What is not awesome about it is that this is picked up 
in this one was in live science which is a major science you know news aggregator and this is unbaked right i mean these are just ingredients put into the bowl you know maybe put into a casserole and it's getting ready to be put in the oven but it hasn't been put in the oven yet yeah we still have like frozen tater tots did you get the latest drop from duncan hines i did not did i miss something yeah i think you did I'm sorry. Mm. Dolly Parton's baking mix from Duncan Hines. Yeah, I did not get it. But back to this this whole putting, you know, science out there and, and it's not been peer-reviewed part. Because that's a great point that you bring up. I really do like the fact that there's a venue for people to put out early versions of the paper mm-hmm. so that they can start getting input and people can start looking at it. Because part of what's great about science is reproducibility having other people look at your ideas um, and apply their expertise on it. it. Kind of like a, like you said, peer review check. But if it's not conveyed that way and it hits mm-hmm. all of these media art, like outlets, that gets very confusing. If you, if you're not like right. living and breathing in the scientific process on a daily basis. And, and I think that live science might argue that they did say it was from a preprint journal, but I don't think they, a use, they, they use the word journal to kind of like muddy it a little bit. They also don't really explain what preprint means. So I, I think if they're going to argue saying like they, oh yeah, we said it was preprint. Nowhere on their website do they actually say what preprint means or anything like that. I agree with you. I, you know, I love, I agree with you, Steffi, that this is an amazing time to do science because of the ability to have a venue like this, right? You know, when scientists can start talking about work with one another before it gets into the peer review process, that just makes the peer review process more effective, yeah. right? Um, you get rid of the really bad ideas and the sticky ones stay, right? The ones that have much better support. The problem is this. And so to be clear, I am a huge advocate of open science. I think it's, mm-hmm. I think it's the way we need to move, right? Yeah. But when we do things like this, we suddenly make the peer population grow. And it's not necessarily the correct peer review any longer, right? Yeah. So now science journalists who maybe aren't experts in this particular area are weighing in. The public can weigh in on things. And suddenly the peers who are reviewing the science before it's been peer reviewed are not the experts. They're the ones who are consuming it are not the ones who have vetted it first. And that is where we get into lots of potential problems. Yeah. So that that's a really great point. And I think it's also important to note that there are different tiers of scientific mm. journals. And Absolutely. that goes with how critical they are in their peer review process and how high it is to pass the scientific bar to be in a journal of that level. And that is getting difficult right now to make sure people that under understand that point of view too, because there's there's predatory journals out there right now. There are really top tier journals where they, you know, we have to publish open science, which which is great, open access, which is great. It's really expensive. That's difficult. The other thing that's difficult is people are getting overwhelmed with like what they need to do in their day-to-day jobs. Um, so the peer review process timeline is taking longer too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so there's just, there's a tension between a lot of things going on right now. Right. And you raised a really, really important point here, Steffi, and that there are tiers of 
journals, mm-hmm. but there are not tiers of preprint servers. There are yeah. a handful of preprint servers and you can have something that would maybe get published in science or nature or the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences right up against something that might be you know, published in the journal of irreproducible results, right? Or something like that, just right. to sort of contrast. I mean, that's not a real thing. It is a real thing, but it's a mock thing. But, you know, you could have Mm -hmm. really low ranked journals that are not high impact with papers that are being published out of this preprint server, just like coming out of science or nature. And when we get it at the stage before it's gone through that peer review and then been thrown into these different tiers of peer review, Mm -hmm. we don't know Mm -hmm. what is good science for, you know, from bad science as a public. And we just see, oh, it's science, right? But even just listening to this podcast, right? We know that there's a difference in the quality of scientists, right? Like, look at me and James, and then look at you. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, just look at between me and Jason, there's a different view quality. We are much, much closer, though, than either one of us is. I I like that you're rounding me up by putting me in with you, Jason. Thank Uh, you for that. Well, I mean, you know, it's all about perspective. Steffi's on a different planet. She's on planet X. Speaking of articles that are put out to the public with scant uh, information backing it up and maybe some confusing titles that I'm going to definitely like lump on, let's talk about the search for Planet X. And how amazing that transition was. It was 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 amazing. Hey, we both virtually (laughs) high-fived with our words. A few weeks ago, we talked about the missing water in the Atlantic, but we're scaling it up for this episode and we're talking about a missing planet. Now, if you remember, like me, the Time Life series of books with uh, Planet X just like hurtling its way towards the Earth uh, and, and waiting to destroy us, astronomers have been looking throughout the solar system for a missing theoretical ninth planet. It used to be called Planet X, a.k.a. the 10th planet, but certain astronomers had some beef with Pluto, and now Planet X has a less cool name. Anyway, a new survey of the solar system from Caltech has eliminated 78% of the places that it could be hiding, and it's narrowed it down to a search in an area close to the orbit of Neptune, and they've done this because there's some weirdness with Neptune's orbit, and that's kind of how we discovered... Pluto, which is a bone of contention with me personally. This is me talking about Pluto now. No, I'm kidding. I did appreciate that the article started with the headline and ended with the sentence. So if it exists, we're narrowing down on the location that we could find it. Maybe someday we can rekindle that all nine planet song we all learned in grade school. Do you think they should be looking like near the Atlantic equatorial waters for for this new planet? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it worked once, right? That's right. That's right. So obviously, I don't really care if there's a planet nine <laughs> out there, like hiding behind Neptune, just like poking its head out every so often, and we can see a gravitational disturbance in Neptune's orbit. But I will say that this article is definitely put out there with a certain type of person in mind to read it and think that this is something that is totally uh, just around the corner of the discovery, right? I didn't read it. <laughs> <laughs> it was that good. It was that good. I read it, James. I read it, James. And I have to tell you, the whole time I was reading it, um, I, I thought the way that they were explaining how it's easier to detect a planet orbiting around a different 
star than it is your own star because you can look mm-hmm. for dips in the light of the star as something passes between it. But there are only two planets, right, that pass between us and the sun that would dim the light of the sun, right? And so in our solar system. And so um, right. anything that is further away from the sun than we are, can't, we can't use that, right? So that's why it's difficult to locate planet X. But you've got to tell me there's not one science writer who looked at this and said, oh, it's hiding behind or being obscured by Neptune yeah. and Neptune's right next to Uranus. So like this planet's being hidden by Uranus. Yeah. That like, what are we doing? This didn't is come out, right? More science training. Right. Exactly. Like that's a, uh, that seems like a low hanging fruit, right? Right. That's a headline Maybe. for you right there. Yeah. That's yeah. the buried headline. That's, that's buried in Uranus. Buried yeah. in Uranus. <laughs> once again, like most of, most of the time where my head is. Mm-hmm. I thought this was interesting, but again, we're in talking about preprint stuff, right? This is yeah. not this is not published research. This is an idea. Um, the idea that it might be that this hidden planet, right, or that we might expect to see a planet hidden by Neptune at some point orbiting our sun. That's fascinating, but we don't have the observation yet, right? And so we're getting again the cart before the horse. And while I love the idea that like discovery can be shared instantaneously. Like you got to have discovery first to share that right. discovery instantaneously. I jump between like in my, in my career theory and experimental. Yeah. And so they kind of go hand in hand, right? You sometimes you observe something and you, and you put it out there. Cause you're like, this is interesting. I don't have a equation to describe what I just saw. Maybe by putting out this observation, I can collaborate or we can come down the line with a, with an understanding our models to describe this phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Or you pause it through the, you know, modeling or, or kind of things like that. What could be happening in our universe? And then you develop, then you design an experiment to kind of verify that. So that's kind of normal. That can happen too. But I don't know the specifics of this one. Well, right. I think that that's an important point, right? And But that's a conversation for a different level of consumer, right? I mean, that kind of conversation is meant for your peers, for your actual peers. Hey, I've got this observation, right? I need to put this out there because I can't explain it. Can I get some input from all of you? That's the point of a preprint server. It really is. Mm -hmm. But you're not looking for input, for example, Steffi, from me. You're looking for input from people whose opinions might actually be valid in this space. And that's not the general public. And it's not the science journalists and it's not everyone not in your field. And so when stories like this that are theoretical, that don't actually have any observation to latch onto it are put out there, it is incumbent upon the science journalists and the communicators to say, listen, this is theoretical. There are not observations for this. And this kind of conversation is really not meant for public consumption as much as it is meant to start a dialogue so that we can get to a truth that is meant mm. for public consumption, right? Yeah. But we don't get those kinds of like trigger warnings, right? Steffi, you brought up a, a Pew uh, article, a Pew poll about yeah. public trust of science. And I think this, this uh, article is like the best place to talk about that because A, we're talking about this like very big headline of a new planet just like lurking out there around Uranus. And also we're, we're stating the name of Pluto, which is very contentious in my household, oh. at least. So why don't you talk a little bit about those findings? Yeah. Um, and I think we can probably put a link to this article. It was, I think the 
the most latest poll was done by Pew in, I think it was like November of 2023, where they just asked the question, has science positively impacted society? To people who were responding to the poll. And it's at an all-time recent low of 53%. And I don't have the thing in front of me, so this is me going off memory, so... You can correct me if I'm wrong. It was in the 50, 53% of people responded that science has positively impacted society. Mm -hmm. This is down from, it was previously 70%, I think in 2019. Yeah, it says January of 2019, 73% of U.S. adults found, you know, found there to be mostly positive effect on society from science down to 57 now. But down to 57 now, but even post or mid pandemic, it was still in the mid to upper 60s. So this is a right, a dramatic drop. Not good, right? And maybe more more concerning is that the mostly negative bin has increased. It's not that the sort of in between has shrunk or grown or whatever. It's that the mostly negative bin has increased. Yeah. Especially among um, voters who lean Republican. Which... I mean, that's concerning because, and, and you can see why, because there's so many articles that are coming out um, without a lot of evidence or peer review behind them because you can, you can put all this stuff out really quickly now um, without putting it into context. Mm-hmm. And that gets so confusing for everyone, including scientists, too. That's kind of a bit of a downer going into the break but in the second half i think we got a story that we can all join hands and embrace science because we're going to the moon but first a message from a podcast that i think you will enjoy so have you ever thought about what would happen if your airline window popped out or if you could build a jetpack using only machine guns (laughs) Turns out you can, but you really, really shouldn't. Hi, I'm Jill Chacha, host of a podcast that's for weird people who like learning about weird stuff. It's called, well, that's interesting. And it's a comedy science-y show that tells the story behind the facts because those stories are funny. Every Thursday, I tell the tale behind an odd new discovery, like how researchers found two mysterious structures surrounding Earth's core, or how it's actually possible to stop hiccups using a rectal massage. Yes, there's a story behind that. No pun intended. And I tell the story because storytelling is the perfect way to learn and remember. The facts are bizarre, the stories are epic, and the laughter is plentiful. So, join the flock and listen to All That's Interesting wherever you do podcasts. In the shadow of the Cold War, a time not unlike our own, fraught with political strife and global tension. Humanity embarked on an unparalleled journey of exploration and discovery. This chapter of our shared history begins in the early 1960s, as the United States established NASA, an ambitious leap towards the seemingly impossible dream of lunar exploration. 
The vision for this odyssey was crystallized by President John F. Kennedy in his 1963 speech at Rice University, igniting a fire of possibility for what he described as humanity's greatest adventure. And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Neil Armstrong reporting the roll and pitch program. With the we control. copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Twink. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Between 1969 and 1972, 12 astronauts left their footprints on the lunar surface, a testament to human ingenuity and resolve. These missions culminated with Gene Cernan, who, before leaving the moon's surface, spoke of humanity's return. And as I take man's last step from the surface, back home, for some time to come, but we believe not too long into the future. I'd like to just let what I believe history will record that America's challenge of today has forged man's destiny of tomorrow. And as we leave the moon and Taurus Littrell, we leave as we came, and God willing, as we shall return. Unfortunately, it all kind of ended. Following Apollo 17, focus shifted. The Apollo program gave way to the space shuttle missions and the construction of the International Space Station and so many other exploratory missions, each of them building on the legacy of Apollo, but none returning to the lunar surface. Hydrogen burnoff igniters initiated. Seven, six, five, four-stage engine start. Three, two, one, boosters in ignition. And liftoff of Artemis One. We rise together back to the moon and beyond. Today we stand on the brink of a new era with the Artemis mission, which aims to return humans to the moon. And the recent successful landing of the Odysseus lander on the lunar surface symbolizes a renewed spirit of discovery and a step towards establishing a sustainable human presence on the moon. Transmitting 
and uh, welcome to the moon. Houston, Odysseus has found his new home. An excellent call, and this is our team of intuitive machines mechanics. This not only paves the way for further lunar exploration, but it's also going to serve as a staging area for future exploration of Mars. The moon is our closest celestial companion. It continues to inspire generations of dreamers and explorers. With the Artemis missions, we renew our commitment to exploration, igniting hope and curiosity about what lies beyond. The journey of discovery continues, with the moon once again at the forefront, guiding us not just beyond our world, but towards a better understanding of our place in the cosmos. We're back on the moon. America has led the way to the moon. Definitely nobody else has been on the moon since the Apollo 17 mission in 1972 at all. Definitely not India last year and China twice in 2018 and 2019. We're only talking about America landing on the moon, specifically an American business on the moon, right? So what do we think about... Uh, Odysseus returning to Syracuse, a.k.a. the moon. Okay, yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. Um, I like the variety of kind of the detectors that they're they're testing out. I mean, there's several things that they're testing out with this lunar. Um, it's, you know, get measurements of the moon and, and various other things, including, like, LiDAR detector that you're taking um, information when you're, like, landing on the moon. Um, another thing, like, studying how the exhaust interacts with the surface because you're having these autonomous vehicles that are landing. Um, and that can help you with, like, um, positioning tech when you're ha- coming to these uns- unsettling surfaces. Um, all the way to Columbia Sportswear testing an insulation material um, for for deep space That's right. transit. Right. So the point yep. of landing on the moon here was to sort of prepare for a trip to Mars, right? And using the moon mm-hmm. as a launching spot for further space exploration. Um, you know, it's finally the sci-fi that we've all sort of come to love is becoming more of a reality now, right? When yeah. that, you know, the idea of landing on the moon to launch yourself somewhere else was only found in yeah. books and movies prior to this. And now that's, that's a reality. That's fascinating, mm-hmm. but it's crazy to think that like, you know, the first moon landing was what? 1972, right? The U- first U S moon yeah. landing, right? And, uh, no, no, that was the last, I mean the last, last one, that's what I meant. Sorry. The last one is what I meant to say. The last U S moon landing yeah. was in 1969 was the, first was the first one right right 72 was the last one and we haven't really come that far we haven't gone further than the moon literally right exactly right? but yet the technology is completely different than it was mm-hmm. in 1972 and yeah. that to me is what's amazing um so i'm really excited to see where this goes i mean we know it's going to go somewhere further than the moon but i'm i'm curious to see hopefully you know what that what it leads to because 
That's fascinating, right? But here is more of a demonstration of feasibility for many things, right? I mean, like, hey, yes, we can get back to the moon. We can do this. Now let's test a couple of other things that we're thinking about as we take baby steps moving toward Mars, right? But I, the timeline is what is sort of creeping me out, right? Because the landing on the moon now is meant to project us to make a trip to Mars by the late 2030s or early 2040s. Mm-hmm. We're already in the mid 2020s, right? Like well, also to have a uh, sustainable and manned research station correct. on the moon by the end of the 2020s. <laughs> right. That I am so excited to see if that happens. But I think this is a really ambitious timeline. I just mm-hmm. I don't have a lot of confidence that that timeline can be met. I think we could do it. I don't think we can do this safely. I want to see an updated timeline. You know, that's the timeline for the whole Artemis mission. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, you know, things slip because of various things. Pandemic. Right. Yeah. Pandemic. Pandemic. Sequestrations. Sequestrations. Yeah. There's so much. Right. Um, I also am a little bit cautious because when you're thinking about like sending autonomous vehicles up there and getting more established routine routes to the moon, then I start worrying about people starting to talk about more mining mm-hmm. on the moon. Who owns the moon? Do we have a right to go up there and harvest, you know, rare earth minerals, helium three? From the moon? No. <laughs> I, I'm going to say no. I, yeah. I think right. no. What do we think? What do you think, Steffi? Am I right? Um, I think, let's see. Let me find my notes for this. Um, oh, no. Is it going to be a So I word? looked, I just, I just quickly looked this up. And it says that space is governed by the Outer Space Treaty. And there's a quote in there that says, Outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies, is not subject to national appropriation by claim of sovereignty by means of use or occupation or by any other means. And then on Earth, when we talk about like who gets to mine resources on Earth, possession and ownership of natural resources are based on ter- territorial sovereignty. So it's like in this gray area of if we can mine on the moon... I'm just very uneasy about mm. the narratives popping up about that. What do we think about this? So this uh, Odysseus lander, this Odysseus landing mission was part of the larger CLPS program, Commercial Lunar Payload Services, that is looking specifically at doing what you're talking about, Steffi. It's creating the economy, the lunar economy. Mm -hmm. So these will be private industries that are theoretically just going to start off by resupplying this uh, Artemis base is what we're kind of like aiming for with the Artemis mission. So this is like a little spur of the Artemis mission, but it is done by commercial entities. And I, I just, it was re- this entire story was great until we get to the literal quote that says, one of our main goals is to make sure we develop a lunar economy. And I'm like, I don't, I don't like this anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why no. does everything have to be an economy? Play the game Otherworlds and tell me about lunar economies and how they're all great for everybody. That's a good point. That's a good point. So I have a, a question actually that I think is really important. And that is because um, Steph, you talked about, you know, 
autonomous vehicles being up on the moon, which just led me to think about vehicles in general. Like if there is an economy established on the moon and there's a colony right on the moon of folks who are working at this base, right? There will be drivers. And so the question to me is, will the worst drivers on the moon also have Pennsylvania license plates or is that just on earth? Almost definitely. Almost definitely. Okay. I'm not going to say you're wrong. I live there. I know Mm -hmm. you're right. I know. (laughs) The big question is, will all lunar vehicles be based on the Toyota Hilux, which we know is indestructible. Like the show Top Gear has proven that. My understanding is that everything, they're going to resurrect Saturns. The Saturn? Yeah. Yeah, The Saturn (laughs) is the only kind of car that can be made in space. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of the Science Night Podcast, but don't worry, we got more stuff coming your way, so you better follow us on that social media, that moon-based social media, maybe even now. If you want to follow me, I am on Twitter X at James underscore Reed 3. Steffi, where can everybody find you? You can find me at X Twitter, at Steffi Deem, or Instagram. I have two accounts, Starshipping or Fusion.Deem. You got you yeah, got to follow yeah. that fusion one. It's pretty good. It's a good follow. Yeah. Jason, where can we find you? You can find me also on Twitter X at Oregon JM, where I'm talking mostly about the decline of academia in the state of Indiana these days. Fun follow. Yeah. So follow Steffi for fun fusion photos on Instagram. And yeah. follow Jason so that all academic users can cry into their get a dose of know, reality whatever Into and if you their, can their pork loin if you can manage to to stick with it though we'll be talking about a super bowl three-peat coming up soon so don't worry okay fine 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 we had to go there well you can follow the show at cyanite pod and visit our home on the web cyanite.com for links to all of our past episodes the people we talk to the things we talk about and our merch we should maybe we should make some like hiding in your anus merch. Um, maybe that's the next step we can do. Um, you know, if we do it, you'll find it all on cyanite.com. We will be back in a few weeks with a new episode. But until then, seriously, they, it was right there. They could have said just hiding behind in front of Uranus this entire time. That's what Planet I'm saying. Nine is hiding. Uh, right. Maybe that's maybe that's why they didn't say it. So everyone would talk about it even more. Oh. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz. Yeah, sorry, that took way too long. That was not... You probably cut that part out. Yeah, me, I think like, so. stumbling over it. That's okay. That can be just for us. Yeah, right. and for we're TikTok, hold that, if it hits, we're gonna hold that deer. Yeah, right here. That's just for us, close to the chest. Mm-hmm. <laughs>